what would you consider to be the needs of the present hour? The answer to such a question are as numerous as respondents. For some, the critical need of the moment includes such matters like protecting the environment or affordable housing, career opportunities for our university and college graduates. Some may think that the need of the moment uh, relates to this whole matter of justice for the underprivileged and the downtrodden. Now, all of these, in their own rights, are essential, important matters. But they share one thing in common, at least this, that these are social concerns pertaining to our sense of well-being here and now. Now, just as these social and economic imperatives are important, so are the spiritual imperatives given in the scriptures. And in chapter 4 of Colossians, Paul lays out imperatives, spiritual imperatives that are at the heart of the need of the hour in which we live. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 and following, Paul lists a few of the imperatives that should guide the church of his day, and I submit to you that should guide us today. He says to the Colossian church, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God will open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. And let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. These exhortation follow the preceding section on the household code, a set of instructions that were given to govern particular relations within the family. The apostle Paul tells them how they are to live in the home as man and wife, the relation between the wife and her husband. He spoke in the preceding section on the relationship that should exist between parent and children and the relationship between master and slave. Now, all of this, these instructions that we saw in the preceding section, fall under the larger ambit of the lordship of Christ. In other words, the reason that wives are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives, and children are to obey their parents, and fathers are not to provoke their children to wrath, and servants are to obey in all things their masters, and masters are to treat 
their servants fairly and justly, as we saw in chapter 4, verse 1, it is because we have a greater master, the Lord Jesus Christ, because Christ is Lord. All of that is under the lordship of Christ. Similarly, the call here, the appeals, imperatives that are given in verses 2 to 6 regarding prayer, regarding this whole matter of walking in wisdom and speaking graciously, all of these fall under the lordship of Christ. It is precisely because Christ is Lord that they are to pray and to walk in wisdom and to speak with grace. I'm going to seek to elaborate then on these spiritual imperatives, these spiritual needs for our present times. First, the writer commands the believers in Colossae to persevere in prayer. Continue earnestly in prayer. This is the first imperative. Continue, he says, earnestly. He tells them that they are to pray and be vigilant, be watchful, waiting for the coming of the Lord. They are to pray with thankfulness. Thanksgiving ought to character their lives. But the main command is to pray. And to continue to, to devote themselves. It is a prayer which is a present and an urgent appeal. They must be busy in prayer. They must devote themselves to it. They must pursue prayer as a feature and characteristic of their lives. So the writer says that they are, he says, continue earnestly in prayer. Prayer, essentially, is an ongoing communion with God. It's a conversation. And really, when we pray and we cease for a moment or for a few hours, we haven't really stopped praying. It's an ongoing conversation. And we actually, when we commence, we pick up where we have left off. But there is an a entire conversation occurring with God and your whole life must be a conversation with God a communion with God it may happen formally in one closet in one's private chambers in one, one's bedroom it may happen while you're driving or while you're walking or riding to work but you see there's an ongoing conversation it is speaking to God and we know that prayer consists of various elements of adoration that is praising God for who he is and for what he has done thanksgiving to God it consists of confession, acknowledging and repenting of sin. It consists of petition, asking God for help, and intercession, bringing the needs of others to God. But fundamentally, this conversation with God occurs in the particular matrix of our own need. It is, it is precisely because we know that we are dependent upon God that we come to him in prayer. It is an expression of first of all our allegiance to God and secondly of our dependence upon him that we pray. And Paul reminds these believers that they are to be always praying. Continue always in prayer. They are to be steadfast in it. And this is a call that reoccurs throughout the scriptures. Jesus himself in Luke 18 
For some of you were in our Bible study, we refer to this. He said, men ought always to pray and not lose heart. This is our Lord. Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, and if the Thessalonians, the epistles to the Thessalonians are to be seen as the first epistles written by Paul, then here in this first epistle of 1 Thessalonians, he says, pray without ceasing. mean, continually pray. Or he tells the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. In Romans chapter 12, verse 12, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. What, what I'm trying to argue here is that if you look at the Apostle Paul and look at the Pauline corpus, the material the Apostle Paul has written, you will see that there is an insistence that believers are to persevere and to continue in prayer. The Apostle Paul emphasizes then the importance of prayer in the life of the believer. Be careful for nothing, he says to the Philippians, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Implore Timothy, I urge then that first of all that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings, and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. What is good? Well, this praying for all men. And pleases our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. Paul says to these Colossians, continue earnestly in prayer. Believers ought to be praying for a number of things. For their own lives. For the needs that they have. Our Lord Jesus laid out for us. Pray for the kingdom of God. Lord, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Pray, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses. We are given a direction by our Lord. A blueprint as to what prayer should look like. But one of the prayers that we are to be praying is Maranatha. Come, O Lord Jesus, come. And in chapter 3, verse 4, the writer says, When Christ, who is our life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. And we're going to be praying, come Lord Jesus, come. But the Apostle Paul expects that they'll be praying and praying constantly. He himself was one who prayed. He begins this epistle with a prayer report. He tells the Colossians that he has been praying for them. And you, you go back to chapter 1 and verse 9, you will see the Apostle Paul says, for this reason... We also, since the day we heard it, that is of their conversion, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And Paul continues to tell them what he has been praying for. But whereas, in verse 2, there is a general call to live a life manifestly dependent upon God in prayer, he tells us the matter of prayer in verses 3 to 4. What should they pray for? 
Well, he gives specific direction as to the content and the substance of their prayers. He says in verse 3, Meanwhile, so generally they ought to be persevering in prayer for themselves, for one another. But now he says, meanwhile, praying also for us, for himself and his companions in the gospel. What are they to pray for? That God would open to us a door for the word. To speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. What are they to pray for? They are to pray that God would open a door. And the word here, door, referred to the door of opportunity. They are to pray for the gospel, that it might have opportunity amongst unbelievers. In writing to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.25, Paul says, Brethren, pray for us. He will ask for prayer for protection. Paul himself says in Romans 15.30-32 that they might pray that he might be delivered from evil men. And we know that the Apostle Paul suffered in the preaching of the gospel. He was persecuted by his Countrymen, he says, beaten three times with rods by Gentiles, and he received 39 lashes five times by the Jews. He was beaten in the synagogue five times, given 39 lashes each time. He makes it clear in 2 Corinthians 11.24 for preaching the gospel. But here, in our passage, he's not praying so much for protection, but he's praying and asking them to pray that the gospel would have a door open to it. A door of opportunity. He's therefore praying for the spread of the gospel. And we see that he has used similar language elsewhere. For Paul has prayed, that the, has asked that, the, that they should pray that the word of God should run and have Free course. We see this in 2 Thessalonians 3. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as is it with you. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. So Paul's prayer is not then for his personal benefit, not even for his personal well-being. He's encouraging them. To be a people of prayer, but a people who also pray for the success of the gospel message. That indeed, the content of the gospel might be received by sinners. That there might be an open door of opportunity in which the gospel would be proclaimed. This door of opportunity is referring then to evangelistic opportunities. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, he says, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. There are many adversaries. But he says, a great and effective door. What, what is that? It's an opportunity for ministry, for proclaiming the gospel. And so he's saying, pray for the spread of the gospel. 
Why? Because the gospel is that which has power to produce fruit. He's already said to them that the word of truth came to them and was bearing fruit among them. But this word of truth, the gospel, for which they are to pray, is first of all the word of truth, the gospel, which saved them. It is when the gospel came to Colossae that they were saved, and they were not saved a moment before. They had lived their lives in paganism. They were strangers to grace. They were strangers to God until the word of God came, and it took hold of their heart. God opened the door of opportunity to the Colossians. God was the one who, through the gospel, changed their hearts. So the gospel has the power to change lives. And Paul says, I want you to be always praying, but when you pray, I want you to pray for an opportunity, a door of opportunity for the word of God, because it is capable of changing lives, of saving men, and causing them to bear fruit in the things of Christ. But they are to pray to God. Notice, notice he says, in our passage, continue earnest in prayer. In verse 3, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word. It is a prayer addressed to God, because it is God who enables the word. To find a lodging place. It is God who makes men receptive to spiritual things. The Apostle Paul would tell the Corinthians that the things of God are foolishness to those who are unbelievers. And they cannot know them. They do not have the power to know them, to receive the things of God. So he says... Address your prayer to God, the one who has the power to open human heart. Pray to God that a door might be open to the word. There's such a thing as evangelistic prayer. And this Apostle Paul then tells them that an important part of their prayer life should be praying for a door of opportunity for the word. I wonder when we pray. If we pray for the gospel, do we merely pray for our families, our needs, and our own lives? Or do we pray for in Toronto and around the world that God himself from heaven would open a door for the word? See, Paul makes it clear, at least here, that it is God who must prepare the way for the gospel. And he therefore asks for prayer that not only would God grant a door of opportunity for the word, but that he might be able to proclaim the mysterion of Christ, the mystery of Christ. Not, not the kind of mystery where we, we are on a hood on it. Not the kind of mystery. The mystery of Christ re- refers to that which was hidden in the past, but has now been revealed. A mystery which the Apostle Paul himself qualifies In chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, he says, That which has been hidden but revealed, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So they will pray for a word, or a door of opportunity for the word, and to pray for the gospel, which he calls the mystery of Christ. 
And the Apostle Paul says to him that they are praying that the, that the gospel would have opportunity among unbelievers. That he might indeed be able to proclaim the mystery of Christ. This marvelous news about Jesus Christ who saves. This mystery which has been hidden in the past but now revealed. That it has always been God's plan from eternity to save one people. That it was always his plan to answer human rebellion with a savior. And you see throughout the history of Israel. There has always been the question is, how do we deal with sin? How do we get rid of sin? And the Levitical system introduced under Moses pointed to the fact it gave a glimmer of an answer that the way that God will deal with human sin is through a lamb. And John the Baptist clarifies the picture. When he sees the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. The lamb that has been anticipated in the the past has now arrived in Jesus. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You see, that's the gospel. That Jesus Christ is God's answer to human sin. It is his blood that was shed. And Paul says, I want you to pray that this, this message, this word of God, be given an opportunity that I might be able to proclaim the mystery of Jesus Christ, the saving news about Jesus Christ, and that I may make it manifest as I ought. What is he saying? I'm, I said, I, he's saying, I want you to pray that God would open a door for the word and that I might be able to preach Christ, the mystery of Christ, and that I may be able to make it plain, manifest as I ought. He's saying, I want you to pray that God would enable me to proclaim the gospel in the way I should. God will give the gospel an opportunity and I may be able to proclaim it in the right way. And so that's the first imperative. The first imperative is to pray always and to pray always for the word. That he might have a lodging place in the hearts of men and women. But there's a second imperative in our passage. Not only are they to persevere in prayer... Secondly, they are exhorted to live wisely or to walk wisely, making the most of each opportunity. So Paul continues. He says in verse 5, walk in wisdom. He said to them, pray continually. Now he says, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. The second imperative, the second need of the hour is not merely to pray, but to live, to live wisely. The, the term to walk wisely or to walk in the in scriptures refer to one's conduct, one's way of life. And here he says there's a second imperative. They are to walk wisely, live wisely. Now, generally speaking, when we think of Hakma, at least Old Testament wisdom, the, the wisdom that the prophets and the poets spoke about in the Old Testament was not essentially intellectual in character. It was moral. The biblical wisdom consisted first of right knowledge, but essentially of right living. 
And that is why we have said over on many occasions that biblical wisdom is a skill of right living. The writer says, walk in wisdom. Pray always, he says, and walk wisely. Walk wisely towards those outside. For the writer, then, wisdom is first of all practical. It means knowing God's will and doing it. That, that in a sense, a, a person who the Bible perceives as wise is one who knows the will of God and who does it. When, when the writers of the Old Testament, Solomon, for instance, talks about the fool, the fool is not an idiot in the way that we would take the kind of term. A fool is not a person who doesn't have knowledge or who doesn't have information. The, the fool, according to the writers of the scripture, are people who do not acknowledge God, who do not live properly, who do not know and do the will of God. It is the fool who said in his heart, there is no God. The Bible perceives an atheist to be a fool, not because he's not clever, not because he's not educated, but because he does not acknowledge God. So you see, wisdom has to do with knowing God and doing his will. It is therefore essentially practical. But here in Colossae and in the writing of Paul to the Colossians, wisdom must be not only seen as knowing God's will and doing it. Wisdom is practical, but wisdom is Christological. That is, wisdom is bound up with the person of Christ. Unlike the false teachers who perceived wisdom in terms of their philosophical pursuit, Paul views wisdom not, mere, not as philosophical but Christological. So he says of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In chapter 2, verse 3, it is Christ who is a fountain of wisdom. He is the fullness of wisdom. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. You see, and it's only those that are in Christ whom the Bible perceives as truly wise. Wisdom is not only practical and Christological, it is biblical. It's related to the word. There's no wise person who can be wise outside of God's word. And so when the writer says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, 3.16, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with grace in your heart. However you punctuate that verse, it is only as the word of Jesus Christ dwells in us richly that we can teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. In other words, it requires the word of Christ the gospel, the truth of scripture, and particularly the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to dwell in our hearts and in our community for us to actually wisely teach and admonish one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and so on. So wisdom is biblical. It requires knowing biblical truth pertaining particularly to the gospel. But you notice in our text where the writer says, that these believers are to walk in wisdom, 
he's talking about walking wisdom, not in a general sense, not only living wise in a general sense, but particularly towards outsiders. So he says, the first imperative is to pray always and to pray for the word of God, that he might have opportunity, that a door of opportunity may be opened for it. But secondly, you're to walk in wisdom, but in particular towards those who are outsiders. Who are the outsiders? They're referring to unbelievers. He's saying that believers are to be characterized by wisdom, but we are to display wisdom in living our lives before unbelievers. Part of living wisely before unbelievers means that we should give no occasion to unbelievers for stumbling. But by what we do and say, we should not put a stumbling block, a hindrance in the path of unbelievers. The Apostle Paul tells says this, he says, give no offense either to the Jew or to the Greek or to the church of God, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 32. We must not, by our lives and by our conduct, if we are to walk wisely, we must not give offense. We must not put a scandal on. We must not put a stumbling block in the path of those who would otherwise be perhaps persuaded to consider the things of Christ had it not been because of our lives, have dissuaded them, turned them aside. So the way we walk worthily towards those who are outsiders is not to dishonor the name of the Lord Jesus Christ before the world. That's negative. We walk wisely by not living in sin, not putting a stumbling block. But positively, he says, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. And if we take this as a true part, uh, participle, redeeming the time, qualifying the verb walk, then he is saying the way we walk wisely is by redeeming the times. Now, the Apostle Paul says something similar in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 16, 15 and 16. He says, see then that you walk circumspectly. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the times because the days are evil. This term, to redeem, occurs in Galatians 3.13, chapter 4, verse 5. It simply means to buy up. And here he says the way that believers are to walk wisely in the world is to buy up the times. Well, what does that mean? How do you buy up the times? Well, it simply means that we are to use the opportunities that we have been given to proclaim the name of the Lord. We walk wisely in the world by looking for and taking advantage of the opportunities that God has given to us to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We buy up the time. We snap up every opportunity like a hot bargain. It is a significant hour. And Paul tells the Ephesians, because the days are evil. And so we must use the time that God has given us, the opportunities that we have been given. We're to buy up the time. We are to make the most of the moment to proclaim and to display Jesus Christ as Lord. We are to announce him to this world. We are to use conversation as segues into speaking about the marvelous and gracious Savior who has died for our sins and brought us to God, reconciled us to him. We are to tell men of a great Savior 
who loved us and died for us, who delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and, and we have been brought into the kingdom of the Son of Light. We have been brought into this kingdom manifested by holiness. We are to, we are to proclaim that there is hope for sinners. We are to tell men and women that this is not a no-hope world, but there is a lot of hope in Jesus Christ. Yes. Make the most of the opportunity. That's living wisely. Buying up the times. But there's a third imperative given. Though the verb is not used, the idea nevertheless is there. So he says, walk wisely before those outside, redeeming the time, using the most of the time that you have to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says that believers, thirdly, as an imperative for the hour, are to be engaged in gracious speech. Gracious speech. And so look at the way the writer puts it. He says in verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. This is the third imperative. That they are to practice graciousness in speech. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. You see, believers are not only to be marked by right belief and right conduct, but also by right speech. James perhaps gives us the most elaborate description of the tongue and its potential for great calamity, great disaster. It can set on fire the whole course of nature. And he says the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. It's a little instrument, yet it controls the whole course of one's life, just like a little rudder controls a whole ship. In fact, James begins in chapter 3 by telling us that right speech is a mark of spiritual maturity. That one of the ways in which you know someone who is spiritually mature is by their conversation, by their use of words, by their language. He says, for we all stumble in many things. But if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Now, that doesn't mean sinless man. It just means a mature man, able to bridle the whole body. Now, while James views speech then, proper speech, as a, as a mark of maturity, Paul views right speech as part and parcel of the believer's life and weakness. That, that, that the way we witness is through gracious speech. See, Apostle says to them, let your speech always be with grace. And the presumption here is that these are those who have experienced the grace of God. The Apostle Paul reminded them that when they receive the gospel, they receive the grace of God. So he will tell them in Colossians 1, 5, and 6, he says he's giving thanks to God for them because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. And what the Apostle Paul is reminding the Colossians is that, that they knew the special grace of God when they came to hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These then 
are recipients of grace. They've heard the word of God. They were changed by the grace of God. They were converted. But what the writer wants them to understand is not only should they receive the grace of God, they should reflect the grace of God and to reflect the grace of God particularly in their speech. So he says, let your speech always be with grace. Grace. Gracious speech refers then to conversation that is winsome, that is kind, that is attractive, that is beneficial. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul gives the church there in Ephesus an idea of what gracious speech is like. He says, let me describe what ungracious speech is. He says, let no corrupt word, and that term there, corrupt word, means smelly word, stinky word. Believers are not to be cursing and swearing and using profanities. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. In our general conversation, we must be gracious in our speech, kind, winsome, attractive, beneficial. But in our public testimony and proclamation of the gospel there also need to be grace he says our speech in a sense must be seasoned as with salt it must reflect a purity and a holiness a winsomeness in character all of this relates to the proclaiming of the gospel of witnessing to men gracious speech holy speech one thinks of what this means when you when you read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says, But sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Set the Lord apart as holy in your heart. And be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, part of gracious speech is defending the gospel, but defending it not with hubris, not with arrogance and pride, but in humility and in respect. That's gracious speech. You see, Christian speech, Christian weakness, must be marked by kindness. We understand that the gospel itself is offensive. When the Lord speaks, he pulls no punches. But we don't have to go out of our way unnecessarily to offend people. The gospel will do it for itself. We don't have to add human offense, calling people names and shouting them down and demeaning them. No. Our our language, our dealing must be characterized by kindness. And it must be appropriate to the circumstance and person. For the writer says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Gracious speech, wisely applied at the right time to the right person. What then are the imperatives or the needs of our hour? It is perseverance in prayer. It is wisdom in living, redeeming the times. And it's being gracious in our conversation to a world that is dying. You and I must consider prayer as a duty and a privilege. 
And we must keep on praying. It's not my intent to lay a guilt trip on you. But I want to suggest to you that the paucity of the hour, the, the great necessity of our times, is a need for praying Christians. You see, we, we have all kinds of plans, all kinds of activities in which we are involved. We are busy. But if there's anything in which the church ought to be busy, it's busy praying. I've said to you, and you pardon me for repeating this, Martin Luther was asked, why do you pray so much? And Luther responded, I have much to do. Therefore, I have much to pray about. The busier we are, the busier we should be in prayer. You see, there must be a fundamental understanding that we cannot live without God. And that we need him. And in prayer, we lay hold of God and we say, Lord, we will not let you go on unless you bless us. You see, prayer is a renunciation of independence and a declaration of our dependence upon God. And so we come to him saying, Lord, we need you. Will you not bless? Will you not help? Will you not build your church? Will you not save? Will you not open a door? We must be a praying people. And if we are to see any work of God, if we are to see any great things done for the kingdom of God, it will require that God people should pray. But I want to issue two cautions. We must guard against two dangers in this matter of prayer. We must not overestimate prayers. In other words, we must not come to the view that God is dependent on our prayers. That is, God, it is impossible for God to work apart from our prayers. No, that God works with our prayers and without our prayers. I think, I think it is very, I think we've got to be honest to say that God has done a lot of things in our lives for which we did not pray for. We didn't even think of praying for. Not, not that we didn't want to pray, but we didn't even think about praying. It's not, in other words, if, if, if God had to bless us only when we pray, we would not get a lot of blessings. And because, so God doesn't just bless you commensurate to your prayers. We must not get in the habit or hold to this notion that God is dependent upon our prayers. We must also remember that God is sovereign. And it is our Lord Jesus Christ who says, and I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail. It is the Lord who has the the heart of the king in his hand and turns it like a water course. God is able to work without us. And he does it all the time. So we need to know that God is not dependent upon our prayers. We must never make prayer something upon which God depends or needs for him to work. But there's a second danger that I want to issue. It's the danger of underestimating our prayers. You see, though God does not need human prayer to work, we must not underestimate the value of our prayers. We must not believe that prayer is inconsequential, that our prayers do not matter. For although God is sovereign, he has willed to often accomplish his tasks through the means of his people prayer. 
praying. Paul realized the importance of prayer in his own life and ministry. He prayed for the conversion of sinners. He prayed for the spiritual growth of the believers in Colossae, in faith, and in love and in hope. And the Lord answers, God is pleased to condescend to work often in conjunction with our prayers, not because he's dependent upon them, but because he has willed to involve us in this great task of building his kingdom. And therefore we are to pray, knowing that God hears and that God answers. We are to call upon him because he wills that we should call upon him. We must pray, therefore, that God would open a door for the ministry of the word, that the hearts of those that are frozen, that the hearts of those that are like iron, that those who have signed a covenant with death, that they might live. We must pray for our family members and our friends and our co-workers and those in our society that God would open their eyes, that the gospel would land in their hearts and live in their hearts and that they may be saved. We must pray. But we must not only pray, we must walk wisely. We must buy up the times that we have. Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest theologians the last of the Puritans, perhaps the, bra- the brightest of them all, perhaps only comparable to John Owen. He preached a sermon in Northampton, New England, in 1734 on redeeming the times. And he gives us three reasons we are to redeem the times. He says this. He says that eternity depends upon the improvement of time. That is, in a sense, eternity. Our eternal destiny, he says, is dependent on our use of time, what we do with time here. Where we're going to be after this life is dependent on how we use time. And he says that our use of time here affects our destiny. How? Because he says, we may use time here to escape eternal misery and to obtain eternal blessedness. The only person who goes to heaven is a person who uses the time right now to know Christ, who uses the time in this life to make it right with God. And what is he arguing? He's saying time is important. We must redeem the time because it is the use of time that affects our destiny. And when we're dealing with men and women, we must know that it is their use of time that affects their destiny. That how they use time will determine where they are in eternity. He said, secondly, we must only redeem time because eternity depends upon the improvement of time. He says, secondly, that time itself is short. And then he says something that that is nuanced, but ought to be borne in mind. He says that time, not only is it short, and you know, you live 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, you start wondering where did time go? I know that when you're 25, you think, oh, you know, 30 more years? Right? But they pass by very quickly, very quickly. Your children and grandchildren start looking at your pictures in the album and think, can't believe it was you. 
It's gone. You can't even believe what you see. It's just gone like that. Time is short. Time is short. But Edward says, time is not only short, time is uncertain. It is short. And of that short time, you have no guarantee. You have no guarantee. And therefore, we're to buy up the time, redeem the time. We're to take the time that we have now to be a witness to others. We should not wait for tomorrow. We should not say at a more opportune time when, when the circumstances are better. We should take the time that God affords you to be a witness because time is short and time is uncertain. In the same breath, you must take the time to draw near to God, to turn from your sins, to follow him because time is short and time is uncertain. And whatever you do, as an imperative for this moment, pray that God will give you gracious speech. There are some people, you know, who have the ability to issue a compliment and make it sound like a criticism. They want to tell you something nice, but when, you're, when they're finished, you think that they've been saying something bad. Sometimes it's just character. But in our dealing with the world, in our dealing with unbelievers in particular, we must become students of gracious speech. We must think carefully, not about what we say only, but how we say it. We must ask God for a winsome and generous and kind nature. That even when we have to preach the uncompromising word of God, we speak it in love and in concern with a tear in our eye for those who are lost. That in our hearts we are broken, we are weeping for the lost, and we are pleading with them out of love that they would turn and that they would live. That our language, our communication may be characterized by grace, by kindness, and by love. Because you see... It's not just what we say, but how we say it to this world that will matter. May God help us to pray. And pray for a dying world, for only God can save men. May God help us to be wise, to buy up the moments he has given us to be a witness, because the time is short, it is uncertain. And may God subdue our natural impulses, that we would speak boldly and speak with grace so that those who hear, God may be pleased to save and to change them unto eternity for Christ's sake. Amen.